Well, it's a great pleasure to be here this evening and a special pleasure to welcome our guest, Will Self. And I thought I would just begin by the briefest of introductions and then move on to a, a shortish conversation with Will, which will perhaps set up some themes that we can explore um, when we open up for questions from all of you who have been avidly reading Umbrella in the last two or three weeks. Um, Will is the author of nine novels, three novellas, four collections of stories, four collections of essays and nonfiction, and two psychogeographical extravaganzas with the brilliant Ralph Steadman. His most recent book is the novel Umbrella, which we're going to discuss tonight, and which, in addition to being one of the most widely reviewed and warmly received novels of the year, has been shortlisted, as you've heard, for this year's Booker Prize, which will be awarded on the 16th of October. That's the day to keep your fingers crossed on. Now, the format will be like this. Will and I will have a brief conversation to get things rolling, and then Will will answer your questions, and we'll open up for a, for a bigger discussion. So let's get straight down to it. Will, Umbrella is a big, challenging novel, the most demanding you have written, and right from the start, we are plunged via the continuous present into the immediate experience of lived, minutely felt life of several richly developed characters in three time zones. But what I thought we would do, if you are okay with this, is if you would read the passage from uh, page 58, because one of the things I remember when the manuscript came in was thinking, uh, was, the, was the thrill of getting the experience of London as it would have been then, coming straight off the page as though you were getting on the horse-drawn bus that Will is about to read about. A bang, followed by a whip-like crack. The shock of it seizes every passenger on the top deck of the bus as the pair, shy and a trap horse coming from Sloane Square, rears in its shafts. Through a curtain of blue smoke that rumples up into almond blossom, the spectators see this freak, the wheels and chassis of a newfangled motor car with the upright black body of a hansom fixed on top. Aha! Aha! Sam Death chortles as the bus driver wrestles his horses past the vehicle which rests at an uncomfortable angle with one set of wheels up on the curb. Ho, ho, my! What a sainted palaver! The motorist and his mechanic are flapping their tweedy wings over the open engine compartment, which still belches, and Sam says, Must have come from the other side, meaning Vauxhall, not Hades. And while it may seem unlikely, Fentiman, that Harry Tate and his pals will do away with our equine friends... The conductor regards Audrey's father respectfully as he speaks, as do the other passengers, surmising that the big man has a professional bent. But Audrey recoils from his portmanteau eyes and the stilton veins that marble his fine proboscis. While the bus continues past the gardens of Eaton Square and the Fulham garage manager speaks of machines, she dreams of terrible chimeras, men with wheels in place of legs. Their bellies a dreadful contrivance of rods, gears, and flywheels, smoke venting from their iron buttocks. She envisions horses whose hindquarters are oxton whizzers, while steering columns have been speared between their shoulders so that their riders sat astride their red-hot withers may twist them this way and that, neighing, screaming. A horse's scream is a fearful thing that Audrey didn't know she knew, coming as it does from a part of her mind that she didn't know she had. It comes from underneath the mattress where things fester and cog buttons are bug-toothed. So now you get a bit of a flavor of, of, of how the book works. And this theme of the, the human or the animal and the human becoming mechanical is one that will run right through the book. And we'll pick it up a little bit later in the discussion. Um, Will, you've talked, you've talked 
uh, quite a bit recently since the, um, the first articles and features that appeared about the book in the summer about your dissatisfaction with naturalism and realism as presented in contemporary novels. Mm. And I've mentioned at the beginning that you've, you've written a, t a total of, well, over 20 books now in a period of approximately 20 years. So my question, next question is, what's the journey you've gone on with your writing that's brought you to an engagement today, mm. 20 years on, with modernism as opposed to another <coughs> style, if you like, or approach? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, um, it's a, I, I've been struck by um, a lot of the, the, the critics writing about this book have, been, have, have approached it in very formalist terms and they're very struck by the fact that Audrey, the protagonist, goes into a post-encephalitic coma in 1922, the year that Ulysses was, and The Wasteland were published, uh, and that she, I think one critic said, she misses out on modernism, you know, and it's a sort of, they think it's an elaborate and extended literary joke on modernism, or at any rate, a play upon it. And that, I'm sensible of all of that happening. I mean, though I'm, uh, it's not, it was never uppermost in my mind. My reasons for, so quite simply, it's not even completely realized stream of consciousness, which is, of course, an impossibility in some sense to just put on the page the content yeah. of the mind, because we don't think in language. You know, we mostly think imagistically, uh, and a lot of thought is somewhere between the senses and thought, thought. And in the novel, I, uh, I use italics for kind of intensified thought, or really the point at which thought becomes linguistic. And I actually use quite indirect speech to describe mental content. So, you know, my form of stream of consciousness is quite provisional and quite circumscribed. But the reason why I wanted some kind of stream of consciousness and, and continuous present was just emotional. It wasn't an engagement with modernism. Mm -hmm. It was an, uh, just that, you know, I think it, it's the line from, from Paul Valéry, the Count took tea at five o'clock. You know, Valéry says, this is the most disgusting idea, you know, the simple past, the idea that the experience can be packaged off in that way for literary consumption by simply you know, the count took tea at five o'clock. Ah, oh, you know, why not at four o'clock? Why not, why not, why didn't he take horse dung? Why didn't, you know, it's sort of, it's the arbitrariness of that convention. Uh, and, and I just felt that on an emotional level, uh, rather than wanting to consciously emulate the, great, the high modernists or anything like that. Just for me, I could no longer write the count took tea at five o'clock. Mm. That's all there was to it, because the counts, either the count's taking tea now, uh, and you, you know, we're in the mind of the count, or what's the point of trying to approach it in fiction? You know, it just becomes so arbitrary. That's all. And that being the case, what was it about? What is it about modernism and those? Let's, I mean, let's leave the modern, the ism aside, and just mm. talk about the books. I mean, what is it about books like Ulysses or Mrs. Dalloway? or later on Kafka, that, that's, that, that appeal to you so strongly that it's become... Well, they it's don't. Become, they don't. <laughs> no, Great. Let's. Not particularly. I mean, no more than any other books. I don't, I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, it's like everybody expects writers to be, uh, writers of fiction to be uh, constantly reading other works of fiction. It's like saying, it's like a plumber mending his own bullcock. I mean, I'm just not that bothered, frankly. I mean, this is what happens between me and the page, and it's a, very, it's a startlingly, uh, you know, uh, arrogant of me to expect people to read my books. I mean, I think that's what people think. You know, how can you justify publishing fiction if you're not reading other people's fiction? Obviously, I have read fiction, and I, and I, and I do read fiction, but I don't, I don't read it in that way. I often read it instrumentally. And I suppose to answer your question a little bit more uh, respectfully, um, yes, I did read uh, Ulysses comparatively recently, about five or six years ago. I mean, in middle age time, that's virtually yesterday. Uh, and, and, and I've read Mrs. Dalloway within the last decade, I would say. 
Uh, I actually did a lot of Kafka reading, and a writer I'd not returned to uh, since youth. Uh, recently, in the last year, I've been reading a lot of Kafka, and I found it a very interesting experience, actually. Mm. Uh, and what I tend to do, I mean, I was writing a long essay on Kafka, is I, I take on another bit of work to force me to engage with fiction, because actually I find it very hard. But I tend to read fiction instrumentally. I just look for what, how writers do things and whether or not I can use them. That's my main thing. You know, as um, Auden used to scribble in the margins of manuscripts, gets, which stood for good enough to steal. Uh, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. And I suppose, yeah, that kind of reading of the high modernists probably did, though it was not conscious, I didn't experience it as, ooh, they're onto something here, uh, but it probably had an impact, yeah. Right. So just to go counter to that, one of the things that, that's really striking when you, when you read your way into Umbrella is the richness of characterization. You've got at the heart of it um, Audrey Death and her brothers Stanley and Albert, her father, her lover, um, a man with a wonderfully created lisp in the novel called Gilbert. Well, he hasn't got, he's only got a lisp because he's taken his dentures out because they're having sex. He doesn't speak with a lisp. Again, these reviewers, they plagued me. Uh, you know, it, it's quite explicit in the text, that, and she says, he's, he addresses public meetings perfectly and enunciates perfectly, but when they fuck, he takes out his dentures. Anyway, so, there you go. We will rejoin the main <laughs> path. <laughs> so you have the nurses and the doctors at Free and Barnish in the 1970s, and Frank Busner in his prime, and again in old age. They're terrific creations. But I read in an early interview that in the FT that some of them um, are, are taken from life. And I'd, this, is, this is not in, uh, an implied criticism. It's mm. just a sense of where you get those characters from. Because Busner has been with you throughout your writing career, yeah. whereas Audrey is completely new and yeah. so on. No, uh, Busner's been with me since the Quantity Theory of uh, Insanity, published by Bloomsbury in uh, 1991, though the book was in fact bought by Liz Calder. Uh, no, not by Liz Calder, by Mike Petty. Do you remember Mike Petty, yeah. Nigel? Yeah. Yes. It was bought by Mike Petty for £1,700 in uh, 1989 or 90, maybe. And then uh, the Bloomsbury, in their infinite wisdom, didn't publish it for a year and a half. Uh, and um, very nice young... Do you remember Elizabeth West, who was here? Elizabeth sent it out to various people and got Doris Lessing interested in it as a book. And I personally knew Martin Amis, and he endorsed it. And I think it's actually the only work of fiction that Martin has ever endorsed, <laughs> weirdly. Uh, and then the, some excitement started to build about the book, and Bloomsbury published it. <laughs> um, so Zach was in that. Zach Busner was in that. That was 1991. He's been with me all along. And it, it was, you know, somebody was saying, actually, just when they were getting their book signed, you know, it, it feels like a warm book. And I took that, obviously, as a deadly insult. Uh, and I was wondering, though, with, with Busner, who I, you know, I, I've, I've carried him through many, many narratives, and, but always examining him from the outside, yeah. that maybe the warmth came from kind of entering his mind. It was such a kind of strange thing to... Like having a kind of social friendship, you know, those people, you know, those people you meet, I mean, I don't go to parties anymore, but I used to, and you'd meet people at a party, and you'd have seen them like two years ago at a party, and you had the same fucking conversation. <laughs> so it was great to see you. And, and then you actually, suppose you did that for like 20 years, and then one time you met at the party, and you became lovers. That would be so strange, wouldn't it? And it was a bit like that with, with Busner, I suppose. Um, the characters that are drawn from life are the death family. Uh, and death, I'm, I'm not, I am a writer, I'm not insensible to the resonance of the word, I do understand that. But actually, rather like the modernist techniques, what drew me to the name death was not its meaning alone. It was more that I was looking for a name like self. 
because I, I already knew I wanted to base it on my grandfather's FOO, as, as uh, psychotherapists would say, his family of origin. Uh, and I, so I was looking for, and I obviously couldn't call them self, I was looking for a name like self. And the deaths and the selves come from the same part of the world, from East Anglia. Mm -hmm. And it's like self, it's a common noun with a lot of resonance that is also a name. So, all fitted. Um, and my grandfather is Albert Death. Uh, like Albert Death, he was, he, he was a mathematical savant. Uh, when we were kids, we would give him lists of numbers, 20 numbers, five or six figure numbers at random, and he would run his eye down them and pronounce the total. Uh, and uh, he had been spotted, he was a Fulham boy, working class boy, and he'd been spotted doing this in a cafe in Fulham when he was a, a boy uh, by this wealthy man who put him through school, uh, who became his patron and put him through school. And my granddad then took the civil service exams and rose very rapidly through the civil service to, to run the Woolwich Arsenal in the First World War. Uh, mm -hmm. So that part of the, of the family, is that's all as it is. And, and they were living in that house in Fulham my great-grandfather was known as Rothschild Self because he was so flamboyant and he was a big drinker and a carouser. And so that's all the family. The part, that is in the, the part that got me going on that whole side of the novel was pulling up in a rather nerdy middle-aged way, pulling up the census form for the family in 1911 right. and seeing that, that I'd had a great-uncle. Uh, that my grandfather had had a brother, and I'd never known that he'd had a brother. Nobody had ever mentioned it. Uh, I knew that he had two sisters um, because a friend of my father's remembered very well them coming to tea in the 1930s, by which time my grandfather was the head of a ministry uh, and was this, you know, had reinvented himself. as He never pretended to be upper middle class, but he was married to an upper-middle-class woman, an upper-class woman, and they had servants and all of this stuff. And these two women came to tea and spoke in broad Cockney accents and said, Hello, Bert, how are you doing? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so this kind of... Anyway, but I never knew about the brother, and looking at the dates, I could only assume from the census that he must have died in the First War. It seemed obvious that he, he must have. And I pursued that line of research as far as nailing down a possible Stanley self that he could have been. But right. I would have had to go to the <laughs> regimental <laughs> records and leaf through them. And anyway, by that point, I started writing the novel. And what I, you know, I'm not really interested in life much. I'm very interested in, well, my own fiction. <laughs> not anybody else's. <laughs> so as I start writing something, I kind of... I couldn't, I, you know, I sort of ceased to, to, be, to care whether he died in the yeah. First War because the reality of the book became more important to me. than uh, So that side of it is all fairly solidly based, not really on actual family history, because by the time I came along, in the, I knew my, my grandfather died when I was about 12 or 13 in the early 70s. Yeah. So by the time I came along, these events were half a century in the past, so they... So what it's based on is embellished family history. So there's a scene in the novel, if any of you read the novel, which actually, I shouldn't say this, but it's probably my favorite scene in the book, or one of them, is the golf match with, uh, where Albert beats these two superiors, these two civil servant superiors, sort of absolutely thrashes them. And that was a story about my grandfather was often told that he had beaten these two people only having two clubs. Uh, a spoon and a mashy niblick. Uh, he had beaten them all. I mean, he was a superb golfer, a scratch golfer, as well as being this kind of mad autodidact and mathematical savant, and six foot seven. Fantastic. Could have, <coughs> we might have needed him in the Ryder Cup. Yeah, we're just pygmies that have followed on. <laughs> okay, well, this yeah. neatly brings us to the next, the, the next question, which, it, which is that the, the depth of characterization in the novel. Um, oh, and Audrey. Audrey, of course, is, go, is go completely ahead. invented. I mean, she didn't. I mean, I don't know where she came from. She's, I love her. She's oh, that was it. I wanted to invent a woman to love. 
Well, they all come to the... I, I love old women and not so old women, so the <laughs> device of having her, you know... Young and old. I could have, a, have her both ways. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there is a point where... This I mean, obviously rich I love men as well, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear yeah. that. This rich characterization comes at a point where Audrey has taken a, a job, is working in the Woolwich Arsenal, and the brother comes round as the controller to inspect progress and to see how it's going. And this, this theme of the human and um, the mechanical resurfaces um, in on page 223, no, read and if more. you would like to read that bit, it comes shortly after we've seen Stanley on the Western Front. Um, he's in a Vickers gun team, firing the gun and being aware that he is becoming, as it were, um, the, wor the word that Will uses is he's, he's um, becoming harmonizing with the machine gun. And this, this theme of the human and the mechanical um, reappears at this point. And then we, as often happens in, in this novel, we, the, by a couple of swi time switches and elisions of characters and point of view, we find ourselves in Woolwich Arsenal with an inspection in progress. Albert, the controller, wishes to know the precise detail of the routine. And so Mr. Harris gives him the overall picture, the numbers on each shift, the separation of tasks, the forming, pressing, and filling machines, the division of the sexes with skilled male fitters kept back from the board for now. When the foreman defers to Miss Death on the matter of the detail, saying, we would have preferred to keep this young miss in the fuse shop. She's a skilled lathe operator herself, Audrey interrupts. Pardon me, Mr. Harris. I'm mostly concerned with the filling machines, but I do some manual work as well, as it pleases Mr. Simmons. Besides, it helps all concerned, we feel, to distribute the tasks a little more evenly. Everyone sees what she means, which is that the trottle should be distributed a little more evenly. The canaries, who for 12 hours a day take the wads of gun cotton and pack them into the shell cases, then sprinkle in the trottle then tamp this violent rending asunder in waiting down still more with mallets before packing in more gun cotton, sprinkling in more trottle, until, until no one in their right mind could conceive of all the mayhem crammed into the smoothly tapering brass cylinders with their nipped waists and fetching bonnets. The canaries, who were paid a supplement that they spend on gay ribbons with which to lace their boots in defiance of their grim and unflattering uniforms. The canaries, whose hands, necks and faces bear the sickly taint of the explosives they handle all day. The canaries who trill, cheep, 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 the home fires burning as their own eyes smart. The canaries who are, Audrey thinks, the little sisters of the blue-gummed peace workers slathering on arsenic. Yes, a poisoned sisterhood with their cheeks whited out by westrays. No surprises then that they don't want to have any more. She is done and leans her hip hard against the bench, the mallet dangling from her hand, the filled 50-pounder cradled in her arms, her burning cheek pressed against the cold brass. The controller says, thank you. And tucking his watch back into his pocket, turns to Mr. Harris and Mr. Simmons, the overlooker, who has come scurrying up, his moly nose questing for preferment. With four fillers per bench and 48 benches per building, and assuming this munitionette is exemplary, say a minute faster than the representative filler, that means only 13,824 filled per day. Insufficient to keep up with the rate at which casings are being cast and brazed or caps turned. You will show me, Mr. Harris, where you're storing the unfilled backlog. A stockpile the men at the front won't thank you for. So in that, in that passage you see the um, plot 
character, style, politics in the book, which, which come out strongly in different, in, in different parts um, and different characters, all fusing together. And through Audrey's consciousness, these scenes of destruction that will follow once, once the shells are fired. It's, for me, it's an extraordinary piece of writing. And I, I have one more question for you, Will, which is when you're, when you're writing, is that a, a scene like that? Is, is this something that uh, comes, as it were, carefully, is carefully constructed, or does it just come flying out onto the page? Um. I've worked with very complex time scales before. I did particularly in something like the Book of Dave, which is quite carefully, um, you know, two-world book, and in, within each world there's a uh, a spiral system yeah. going on with time. So I, I'm used to working with. I think the thing is what, when you were saying. I mean, the thing for me, one of the things I don't like about so-called um, realist or naturalistic fiction is when you read it, the author says to you, through the impersonal orator, this is Cynthia. She's a librarian in Montauk. She has six cats called Tinky, Winky, Dinky, Binky, Nunky, and Aristotle. Uh, or in fact, the author would say she was a librarian in Montauk. And then they'll say a bit about Cindy. They'll say, you know, she had an unhappy love affair when she was 16, or her father molested her, or her uncle didn't molest her, or, you know, it, it's called depth psychology. And then, having set Cindy up as a predetermined kind of automaton, we'll push Cindy out into the world and see how she behaves as a character. And God, that's boring. It's boring to read, and it's got to be boring to write, frankly. And I've never really done that. And the great delight of writing like this in the continuous present, and I hope it's enjoyable for the reader as well, is you don't know what the characters are like, except insofar as their mental content is shaped and changed by the things they say in media rays as they go on and events occur to yeah. them. So you're with them, and you can't, because that's how you know other people and you know yourself. I mean, I don't really know anybody, but you can feel free to correct me, who, even after having been in psychoanalysis for years, will walk around in the world thinking to themselves, ooh, that's because my mummy didn't love me, you know, <laughs> when they react to something, you know, and that's how characters in books behave, normally with a bit of kind of crudely tacked on, usually Freudian or some variety of Freudian mm -hmm. death psychology. I don't think it's true, for a start, about how, what people are like. I think all we know is how people behave and how they think. So that's all I do with the characters in this book, is I take them through life situations. I never even had that predetermined an idea of what they were like mm -hmm. before I started writing the book. So I discovered them. I knew what I was, roughly what was going to happen. I didn't know what order it was going to happen in. I didn't know how the different worlds were necessarily going to relate. I had a plan for it, but actually I abandoned it in the course of writing it. Mm. And that was the exciting thing about writing the book, was allowing these people, allowing me into their minds, and then taking me where they went. And the actual style of conflating dialogue, mental content, and a slightly uh, occluded third-personal perspective, a foreshortened third-personal perspective that's in, uh, inside them as well. I think there's a technical term for it, a monopolized narration. Kafka uses it a lot, of course, actually, it's true. If you read the opening of Metamorphosis, it's actually an uncanny bit of writing, and you don't realize when you first read it why it's so uncanny. And the reason is because you're both in Gregor and not in Gregor at the same time. And it's a, I mean, I don't know how, sadly, I don't read German, so I don't know how, I think it's even better in German than it is in English, unbelievably. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting to, to, to write and difficult, actually. It'd <laughs> be much easier to just write the count to tea at five o'clock. I mean, what the fuck? Well, maybe that's next. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I think the time is, it's now the time to um, open up to questions from, from the floor. So there's a microphone just at the back. Who would like to begin? We have one 
Hello. Um, so uh, one of the strangest bits for me of the book was uh, the character Michael. And, you know, when I wasn't quite sure whether, you know, Stan was dead or what had happened, I was just wondering where he came from, if that's from a belief in the afterlife or what, where, where, that, where that idea came from and, and what it meant. And <laughs> was it purgatory or, or what was it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that if this was the international movie database, I would now issue a plot spoiler uh, <laughs> announcement. But, you know, you're here, and if you haven't finished the book, then it's kind of tough shit, really, isn't it? I mean, it's just, just, yeah. um, it was an absolutely pervasive myth, both among the, the Allied troops. I don't know, why do we always call our side the Allies? I mean, they were allied too, after all, among the British and French troops and also among the German and Austrian troops uh, and other troops in Flanders during the First War, that there was a secret army, anarchist army of deserters who were living below no man's land in tunnels that they had constructed and that at night they would come up and invade the trenches silently and steal rations uh, and then retreat back down to their underground. And this was an absolutely kind of commonplace myth. So when Stanley uh, is killed in, on the Somme, he enters that world. It's his kind of bardo, like in the Buddhist idea, it's his, his space between lives in a way. But it's also Audrey's fantasy of what happened to him after death uh, that comes to hit her while receiving electroconvulsive shock therapy in the hospital some 10 years later or whenever it is. So when that imagined anarchist beneath the trenches, well, it breaks out into a kind of, you know, libertarian revolution and he comes back to her. Actually, she's in, in one of her encephalitic fevers. So it li links in a Moebius way both to the disease and the treatment. Uh, it, the circuit's then completed, and he's properly dead at that point. He, she, he's lived on in her consciousness. And she, as it were, comes to out of that reverie. And it, it's quite subtle. I don't know whether you notice it. She comes to from from the uh, electric shock when she's receiving ECT. And what she's done is incorporated the people who are giving her ECT into the underground fantasy. If you remember, the, the doctor's a Glaswegian, yeah. and he turns up in the underground world of Stanley as a rather sceptical character. Who's, and, and of course, it's because he's actually a real psychiatrist who's... Um, so there you go. You, you might need to reread no, it in order, in yeah, order yeah, to yeah. get exactly what's going yeah. on, because there are a lot of uh, fancy philosophical word ontological shifts occurring over that passage. Yeah. Now, one, uh, yes, halfway back, gentleman with the beard and the blue shirt. Well, it's not quite a blue shirt. It's the kind of thing I bought on eBay. It didn't quite turn out how I wanted it. Um, it's very why handsome. <laughs> uh, it looks blue from here, too. Anyway, 1890. My grandmother was born in 1890. She was a nurse on the Somme and actually came across a lot of these cases. How did this first interest you? Um, as they first called it Catatonia in 1874. And it's only because of this chap who was a bit of a flyer, I believe, the Austro-Hungarian. Air Force, Baron van der Sur, the Romanian. What first gave you the idea for this subject? It's I simple mean, as that. Encephalitis lethargica. Indeed, yes. Uh, from well, the, the, the Oliver Sacks book, uh, Awakenings, which I, I must have read not long after it was published, uh, either in the late 70s or early 80s. I think actually it was published about 73 or 4. Uh, and uh, my mother worked for Duckworth, who were his publishers in the 70s, and I, I met Sachs at that time, uh, and he made a big impression on me personally. I thought he was a fascinating man. 
And the book, if you've read it, or if anybody's read the book, or maybe seen the major motion picture with Robert De Niro in it, I have to say, no matter how what reverence I have for Oliver Sacks, it must be very, very demeaning to be portrayed by Robin Williams on film. Um, uh, that's well, what, what got me interested in it. Yeah. Well, may I say that uh, this was a condition that my grandmother came across constantly, but they didn't know what it was or what to deal with. Mm. They called it catatonia, they called it shell shock, where some of them actually just starved to death through emotion. In emotion, lack of motion. Mm. And like you use, I think, in the book, that their motions were so small mm. that they were like statues. You could look five minutes later, they'd move slightly. Where the opposite of catatonia is they'd move swiftly. It was yeah. something at the time they, obviously at the time, during the war, 15 to 26, it's odd it, there was no further case after 1940, so why not in But there was, an out, there was an outbreak in Theresienstadt, as I say, or I put it into the mouth of Albert in the novel, bizarrely, uh, the, the Nazis' ideal concentration camp. But, I mean, rereading the Sacks, when I came to it again, what struck me, and it's, you, you mentioned it, was this business of extremely small movements uh, you know, of, of uh, akinasia, kind of incredible paralysis and slow movement, and festination, incredibly fast and rapid movement. And the coincidence of the encephalitis lethargica epidemic, which was a kind of prequel to the Spanish flu uh, at the end of the First War, and the coincidence of this with the kind of mechanization of warfare seemed astonishing. Here you had a disease, that, the symptoms of which were the human being like a machine taking place at exactly the point when the machine age was, in a sense, gripping humanity, at any rate, in the West, and destroying them. You know, the, the, the war on the Western Front, and in the East, but in a particular pure sense on the Western Front, was like, a, you know, a almost 300-mile-long assembly line of death. You know, it was like some grotesque parody of Henry Ford's production line for the Model T Ford. So... Those kind of coincidences, they're the kind of absolutely the thematic meat and bread of the novel. And what got my juices going as a, a writer uh, was the idea of somehow trying to express this idea, which was that an individual or a group of individuals could be personifications of a huge social and economic change. Uh, and it's the sort of thing you can only do in fiction. You can't do it in any other way. That's the... Uh, uh, yeah, that's it. That's enough. How many people did it affect? Five million people. Uh, a third of them died more or less immediately. Uh, a third recovered completely. Uh, and a third seemed to recover for, for anything between a year and three or four or five years and then relapsed mm -hmm. into these. Either they got a thing called sleep agripnia, again, this incredible extremity of response. Sleep agripnia is when you just can't sleep and you die through lack of sleeplessness. Or they went, as the gentleman has described, into these strange, co almost coma-like states, except that they were capable of these, these kind of minute motions. Right. But during the, as he says, you know, his uh, grandmother knew these things. During the early <laughs> 1920s, and I put it into the mouth of one of the characters, uh, Marcus, one of the psychiatrists in the book, there was a vogue for them. I mean, they were known as a phenomenon. They were called enkies in popular culture. Right. And you would go, you'd see newsreels of them at the cinema because for a period before they fell into these comas, they had a kind of zany, prankish ability to move. And in the Sachs book, somebody describes having been at school with somebody who was a post-encephalitic who everybody wanted on the cricket team because he was so quick with balls. They had this kind of astonishing thing. The world is a strange and fabulous place and much better than fiction. That's it. Now we have one just here. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you laughed when you wrote something which this kind of lovely stuff that makes us laugh and when you actually found yourself writing it, whether you got a chortle out loud yourself. Well, I mean, that's what's been interesting about the experience of this novel in particular for me, because uh, I think the reason why it's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize as opposed because frankly, people keep saying, well, you must be very proud you've been shortlisted for the 
Booker Prize. And I say it's the book that's been shortlisted, not me. I should have won it fucking years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the reason the book, I, I'm, the English are empiricists. Uh, and I say the English advisedly. I think all but one of the judges are English. Uh, the English are empiricists. Uh, and there aren't any really, by my standards, any jokes in Umbrella. So they looked at Umbrella, as opposed to my other books, and thought, there are no jokes. It is serious. Therefore, it can, you know. Uh, because in the past, I've tended to have quite a lot of jokes in my books. And you're absolutely right. I, yeah, I, can, I admit it. I mean, when you write, you split into two, and you're a reader and you're a writer. And you write a joke and you laugh at it. You know, that's what you do. Uh, but there aren't that many jokes in this book, actually. There are some amusing things, but there, there are no kind of, there are no gags. There are no actual gags. Whereas in the other books, there are, there are gags, you know, and set comic routines and kind of set, you know. There you go. Yeah. I often think I put the jokes in for several reasons. One is because. I mean, there are great jokes in Tolstoy. Proust is an incredibly funny writer, and in French, he's laugh-out-loud funny, which is saying something, because the French have virtually no sense of humour. Indeed, <laughs> uh, if you ask the French what, uh, to name a kind of funny <coughs> thing, it's either Jacques Tati or Proust. I mean, there's absolutely nothing in between. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't understand this thing of, you know, it's a, if it's serious, you can't have jokes. I mean, it's... Anyway, there you go. Yeah, you can say all you want. <laughs> uh, it's like um, uh, As I Lay Dying yeah. is in America a comic novel. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Strange that it won the Pulitzer. But then they're not empiricists. Oh, they are kind of. All right, anybody else? Yeah. Hi. I was just wondering whether. Uh, Going forward now with your writing career, whether you'll be, you'll adapt this stream of consciousness idea, or whether you'll be able to sort of go back, or will that feel too much like a regression? No, I can't go back now. <laughs> it's going on. It's going on. It's like Joyce. It's Finnegan's Wake next. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, in, strangely for me, and I didn't think of it this way, but over the summer, uh, almost entirely, uh, the the two sequels to Umbrella have built in my mind, uh, and I know how I want to carry the, the whole project forward. It's, it's, it's a trilogy of books, and I've blocked out most of what the next two books are going to be now, which has been very exciting for me. It's been a very fruitful summer. So that's strange. And yes, I am going to keep, I mean, I'll modulate the style, but no, I'm not going back to the, the Count Took Tea at 5 o'clock or whatever it is. No, I, I can't. I just can't. The door is shut and padlocked. Sorry about that. There's one right at the back. Um, I think it was quite a few years ago you wrote something about being a satirist that you feel the tension or you have to have the tension between walking the line between a sort of moral relativism and a sort of moral objectivism to be able to say, you know, this is bad, mm. but equally it's all shit anyway. So, mm. you know, to be able to get the humour in your work as well. Mm. And I wondered if you felt a similar thing between free will and determinism because that seemed to be a sort of subliminal issue in the book with people mm. becoming machines and this has come up in some other books as well yeah. that you've written and whether you've kind of struggled with that or whether you've wanted to go one end and say you know we're not machines you shouldn't pump us yeah. for drugs yeah. because we don't work like that or you know on the other hand you have to accept yeah we are oh absolutely machines. no you've nailed it that's that's that is a preoccupation and surely it's a preoccupation for all of us I would say that, you know, kind of objectively and, and rationally, insofar as I'm capable of being rational, uh, I think that we possess free will. But, I mean, with obvious contingencies hedging that round that we're all aware of, of all kinds, but that basically, if I, if I decide to pick up this copy of Umbrella, I am empowered to be able to pick it up that I have free will, certainly at that level. And in certain kind of uh, extended scenarios, my, my will is still freer. 
But emotionally, I think that we're basically what philosophers call hard zombies. That's my actual emotional feeling. And when I look at society, I see society as an, uh, an ant-like phenomenon. Uh, I see ma human mass behavior as being very, very uh, constrained and deterministic. Uh, so, you know, it's rather like Schopenhauer said, you know, the more I love mankind, the less I love man. But, you know, uh, so that's my feeling. In fact, I saw my old philosophy tutor, who's the uh, Galen Strawson, who's a professor. At, um, and, you know, philosophers are very dismissive of what they call the hard zombie argument, which is that it's possible to imagine a society and a culture completely like ours uh, being produced by beings that have no free will or even self-consciousness. And I know it's possible because I see them all around me. Uh, <laughs> but he was very dismissive of this idea. But I just looked at him and thought, oh my god, you're a zombie too. Uh, uh, but of course, rationally, I know that I have free will. Does that help you at all? <laughs> yes, we have one right down at the front here. Um, does looking at art influence your work? I'm, I'm a friend of Rebecca Hossack, and um, I, I met, well, I think you opened one of her shows this mm. year. Mm. And do you like Aboriginal art? Aboriginal art? Um, I have some. I have, uh, um, my father immigrated to Australia in 1980. And I went out and lived there, uh, not for long, for about nine months. Uh, and I ended up working for the lands department of the Northern Territory government. And I met a lot of people a bit older than me, this is 30 years ago, who they're very well described in Bruce Chatwin's book, uh, The Songlines. They're the kind of baby boomer, kind of 60s generation in Australia, white Australians who, who, instead of going to India, went into the interior and really helped the Aboriginal people to galvanize the land rights movement in Central Australia. And I fell in with a gr group of people like that, essentially political activists, and, and spent time in, cent in Centralia, in Central Australia. So it's not really the art for me, which basically looks like a load of little dots on them. I mean, I mean, they're great and everything, but I mean, I suppose there's a nice coincidence between the kind of retinal painting, as Duchamp would put it, of Mondrian and people like that, and that kind of um, Aboriginal art. But it isn't really the art qua art for me. It's what it signifies in terms of an entire kind of world picture. I mean, I found the Australian Aboriginals were the first traditional people to whom I'd been properly psychically exposed, and I found them incredibly exciting. And I just thought, when I got back to the white Australian cities, I just thought, fucking hell, you know, you are pathetic. Crouching here on the edge of this amazing continent that these people have occupied for 44,000 years with an incredibly complex and magical system of oral culture. And here you are being sort of, you know, extra fodder for neighbors and, you know, getting the Barbie out. I mean, it's just kind of laughable distinction, really, between white and black Australia. I mean, just hilarious. You've never seen a, a greater juxtaposition between cultures. I think she's like a lot of people in that position, which is she's a necessary evil. You know, she provides some money for Australian uh, artists, but she probably provides a great deal more for herself. Charm. What does charm mean? <laughs> Cocteau said, charm is the quality that enables you to solicit the answer yes before you pose the question. <laughs> In other words, it's very close to fascism. <laughs> That's enough of that. Somebody else? <laughs> yes, yes we have lady one. here. No, not lady. Woman. What is this lady bullshit that I'm keeping in? Um, no, I'm, I'm just a bit puzzled about the whole realism thing, because the way you describe the being in the moment and that's, that's all there is, who we are right now, <coughs> seems much more to represent the idea of realism than the Count took tea at 5 Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's the great paradox, is that I think, you know, particularly when you read something astonishing like Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of Ulysses, 
there's far more, as it were, fidelity to life, to lived life in that, than there is in anything that uses the apparently objectifying device of writing in the simple past or writing with an impersonal narrator. You know, uh, so it's strange to me why that should be regarded as, in some sense, naturalistic. I think it must be because of the enormous uh, kind of culture camp that's grown up around it and, and how important it is ideologically. And I think it's also because most novels uh, are written by people who read too many novels. You know, there's a, and they're read by people who've read a lot of other novels. And, and there's a sort of circularity in it. You know, there's a certain kind of circularity, particularly here, I have to say, in England. I mean, just think... But, I mean, very, you know, actual, actual verisimilitude is quite difficult in the novel. I mean, if you want to be faithful to people's lives, just to take one example, I mean, I say this all the time, but I'll say it again. The average uh, English person watches two and a half hours of television a day. So any novel should include long scenes of television watching. <laughs> it just must. It just, it abs you must at least, even in the simple past, allude to the fact that television has been watched. But it's so, you know, there was an, an hour during which she watched, you know, crown ten-pin bowling for no reason other than that she'd taken too many Valium and couldn't get up off the sofa, or whatever. You know, there's got to be some reference to this vital part, component in the day. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, just one more question. Um, is there an audio book, and have you done it? Um, there will be an audio book. No, they asked me to read it, but I didn't feel up to it. Um, it's, 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 tough. it's a tough job. And actually, the same company have done several of my books, and I felt that the ones that they did with professional actors were better than the ones I did. That's just my feeling. So somebody else is doing it. I mean, it's a notoriously it will be tough to read. I mean, you could tell from that section where I am trying to modulate the thought with the sort of vaguely indirect speech that would be bloody hard. Uh, so I'm hoping whoever reads it will consult with me, but don't know, I couldn't face it too much. They needed it done sort of this month or something, mm. and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And it would have taken a little while to read. Well, I did... Did I do the Book of Dave? I did the Book of Dave. I mean, let me say, I am absolutely brilliant at it. So um, uh, I did the Book of Dave, I think, in, in three and a half days uh, of studio time. Uh, so I think I could have done Umbrella probably in five, but it's, it's hard graft. It's much too much like hard work. And also, it's horrible reading your own books over again, actually. I've forgotten how nauseating the experience of... <laughs> Confronting your own prose is it's horrible. Yes. We'll take one. Yes. We'll take one. Uh, or was there a hand halfway no, no, back? No, no, this okay. woman one, here. One there and one, one there at the and back. One there. Okay. Um, I think we've kind of touched upon the same subject before, but I was just thinking in terms of might be a strange question, but who would you say is kind of in charge in Umbrella? Because there's a lot of like we talked about free will, and I just I just keep being struck by this idea of control. So you've got people who. I think the, the, the excerpt that you just read out where um, Audrey's kind of, she's clearly almost like she's above her superiors in the factory. Albert obviously is, a, is, a, is mentally and intellectually a superior. So they're clearly kind of above the, the masses. But then they're struck down by, Audrey's obviously struck down by the illness and Albert mm. seems to be kind of limited by his own brilliance in certain ways almost. And it keeps kind of going back and forth about this idea of, and then obviously the whole kind of leitmotif of the umbrella, the idea that you can just cast people aside and you're using... Mm. Like, you mentioned reading books for a functional reason, that like you're reading what you can use, so this idea mm. that you can just use things. So, I mean, I mean this is kind of... The, the, I'm trying to get to a question because I just feel it's a real... The, the idea of control is really kind of running through the whole book, and mm. obviously... Um, but in terms of when you were writing the book and when you kind of think about it now, who do you think is in control? Who's in charge in Umbrella? Well, I don't think anybody's in charge. I mean, I think that is the, precisely the point. And the reason why the Elysians between the separate consciousnesses of the characters are unmediated. You know, I started off thinking that when I switched from one consciousness to another, there would be a device. So it would always be through 
a mechanical device, the way that it starts through the watch. Uh, it starts from, from Sam Death's watch to Busner's. And I thought, well, they were all going to be like that. But then the text started saying to me, no, that's not the point. The point is that the reason why all consciousness is allied without any break at all is because none of us are in control. That's the way to, to get the sense of uh, collective consciousness flowing in an unconstrained fashion. It's simply to move between them, sometimes in the space of a word. You know, you start one word in one mind and end it in another mind somewhere completely different. So no, nobody, there is no hierarchy of control and nobody is in control. If I can suggest why I'd, I'd recommend this book as for the Booker Prize rather than maybe the, other, the previous books that you've written is exactly that sense of previously I feel like the form has been in control and the author has been very much in control. Mm. And here it's kind of, and I, I, kind of, I mentioned the idea of warmth before and I think it's the fact that it's, it's empathetic. It's the idea that you kind of open up the book. Well, no, no. I mean, people said that the book of Dave um, was quite um, empathetic and that, you know, had a, I was gutted, obviously. Um, and, you know, it had a kind of idea in a paradoxical sense of, of redemption in it and all of that. I was miserable about that. But I do think you're right. I mean, quite clearly, if you're just going to write within the, the, the consciousness of characters, then the authorial voice, in theory, should evaporate. It should just go. Uh, and I suppose that is the aim in, in some sense. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm glad you appreciate it. But I think the other point about that is, of course, what is in control are institutions. You know, and, 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 and institutions, whether they're states or, you know, uh, the economic aspect of states or mental hospitals or, you know, whatever they are, institutions are way more than the sum of their parts. They create some kind of, what they create is some form of psychic control or, or rather, you know, if we think of all of these collective human consciousnesses as a, as a, as a stream, as a torrent of, of awareness, that the institutions are like systems of dams and blocks and chutes that kind of canalize that and make it impossible for it to flow in some way. And, and eventually, will it will kind of extinguish or dissipate the individual consciousness as well. will actually kind of just shred it. And there was one at the back on the other side, Claire. Yeah, I was just wondering if you'd um, visited the Princess Park Manor in its current state, and if you'd had a chance to see it when it was still a, a sort of a hospital. Um, well, I mean, Strange to relate, I mean, one of the reasons why I put Audrey in her post-encephalitic coma in uh, what, I, what was initially Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum, uh, then Colney Hatch Asylum, uh, then uh, Free and Barnet, I can't Free remember all... Mental Hospital, no, yeah, just took the mental out. Then Free and Barnet Hospital, yeah. but I think we missed one. I mean, it's had Possibly, yeah. maybe more than four names since it was built in the, in the 1850s. The reason I put her there was twofold. One, it's on my manor. I, I grew up in kind of Hampstead Gardens, suburb East Finchley. I never know which to say, because if I say one, people then put snidey things on the internet or whatever, saying, he said he grew up in the Hampstead Gardens, suburb. Really, it was East Finchley. <laughs> or if I say it was the Hampstead Gardens, suburb, they go, uh, if I say it was East uh, the Hampstead Gardens, suburb, they go, no, if I say it was East Finchley, they go, he says he grew up in relatively proletarian East Finchley. <laughs> in fact, he's a posh boy from the Hampshire. Who gives a fuck? Anyway, um, so I better say both. Is it's about, as you know, because we spoke earlier, it's about, what, two miles from, from, from Frian. And, it, and the, the woman who lived behind us when I was a kid uh, in N2, that's probably the neutral way of saying it, w worked at the hospital, was a psychiatrist at the hospital, and she was this incredibly glamorous figure uh, to my mother. My mother loved anything to do with, with mental health in any way, shape, or form. Just loved it. And uh, um, the woman who lived behind us, that she was a psychiatrist, was just so glamorous. We were so impressed by that. Uh, and indeed, it was unusual for a woman of her generation to be, to be a psychiatrist, but she qualified uh, during the war. And she's still alive. And I went back and, and interviewed her for the book. 
Uh, and she was fantastic and really interesting about, in a way that only people who've been there can be about, about that stuff. But she, um, but I never consciously saw Free and Barnet until I went there to research the book. So the trip that Busner takes back in 2010 was just based on the day I went and visited it. I'd, ne I t I'd never consciously seen it before, and the reason I picked it out was it was on my manor, and of course it was the original basis of the expression, the booby hatch, because it was the great clearing house for particularly poor mentally ill people uh, were cleared through the, the entered Cockney phraseology as, you know, you'll get sent to the booby hatch. So it was that linkage between kind of demotic London and the, my own past that, that attracted me. I went there once, and I had the, it, and it was, the trip was quite like Busner's trip in the book. And I was taken around by the woman whose developer father had bought it when the hospital closed and the last patients were discharged in the early 1990s. And she was very helpful. And the architect who had done the uh, conversion into luxury flats was there by chance. He's retired. And he went around with me. And it was absolutely bizarre. I mean, I don't mean to speak unkindly about him, but for one, I mean, it was strange because this woman, Caroline, told me that a lot of old patients did come back. You know, that a lot of people who'd been so institutionalized that they couldn't cope in the outside world would kind of gravitate back to the hospital like kind of homing pigeons. And, but it struck me that this architect, who's quite elderly, was rather like that as well. And he couldn't leave the site of his great conversion of the mental hospital into luxury flats. And he took me around and lovingly showed me all these details. And I was just looking at him and thinking, you are wacko. Why don't you stay away? It's a mental hospital. It's, you know, I, I mean, I don't get the, I mean, I, this woman, Caroline, was very good about it. And I said to her, you know, isn't it a bit weird? She remembered going there as a girl. I said, don't you find some kind of resonance here? And she just looked at me and said, you're not kind of, you don't believe that kind of hippy-dippy stuff, do you? It's a building, you know. And you could, uh, but I do, actually. I yeah, mean, I would I've, never um, dream in living in an old, long-stay mental asylum. No, no. I mean, just, no. My it's, wife's a psychologist, and she has older colleagues who remember working there when it was still a, yeah. a facility. Yeah. They've, they've, they've been there since, and they say there's, you can't remove that. Well, how can you? It. It's like saying, oh, well, you know, I'd move into, into Theresienstadt, the Nazis' <laughs> concentration camp. The property's cheap. <laughs> I've got a friend who, who lives in Crouch End, actually, and she, she's pretty strange. And they'd wanted to buy this house for a long time, and they'd been looking at it and going with the estate agents. And one evening, they were passing by the road where the house was for sale, and they saw crime scene tape up all over the place. And they approached the barrier and the police said that somebody had been murdered in the house that they wanted to buy. And my friend told me later, I just rejoiced because I knew we'd get 40 grand off it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, yeah. what can you say? But so now I went once and it's like when I was writing Great Apes, I went once to the zoo and went once with the head primate keeper at London Zoo and kind of met the chimpanzees in the zoo once, and that was enough. And it was absolutely amazing, and it was astonishing to be with them. I mean, I mean, I've told this story lots of times, but I think it's incredible. I went to see the. You go in back to where the back of the enclosure, and the the chimp came up to the bars. And in in zoo troops of chimpanzees, females can get very high status, direct status. Uh, as long as they don't uh, go into estrus, they don't ovulate, and they become rather like humans in captivity. They stop having their periods. They stop having, so they then rise up, the females rise up the hierarchy. So the alpha in the troop at London Zoo is female, and she came up to the bars, uh, standing on, on uh, bipedally, and she saw this mark on my arm, and she pointed at it like that, and the guy, the primate keeper, said, oh, she's spotted your tattoo. Uh, she, wants, she likes tattoos. She wants to see it. So I rolled my sleeve up to show her the, the tattoo. And she went like this. 
And I started holding my arm out to the bar, and he said, um, quite quietly, he said, don't, don't let your arm go anywhere near the bars. And I said, why? And he said, because she wants to break one of your fingers. That's why she's tricking you. I said, what? And I suddenly, the whole kind of PG tips thing just <laughs> completely <laughs> fell away from my eyes. And I said, oh, you serious? He said, yes. He said, I know every chimp in that troop personally. I've seen a lot of them born, uh, and I, I know everything about them. If I walked in there, I would be dead in 30 seconds. And I thought, yes, that makes sense. These are incredibly intelligent uh, primates who are imprisoned against their will, and, they don't, and they're furious about it. And, but it was so clever. She was so clever. Brilliant. Anyway, that's another that. But right. I, when, you know, I never <coughs> went back to the zoo. Move on. The shark moves on. Okay. We will take one more question because we're we're um, we're coming up to being out of time. So if we're, your last chance. No. You've satisfied everyone. Will. Oh, now all you have to do is win the Booker Prize. Oh yeah. yeah well, well. <laughs> what, what, what's that about? Um, so. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'll be around for a bit longer if anybody wants to chat or was it, was, you know, what we call shy sharers. Uh, if you wanted to share, but if you're a little bit shy, then uh, I'll be around for a while. All right, thanks for coming. Please join me in welcoming. Thank you very much.